Welcome back to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. I'm Bruce Dobigan, and this is where curiosity leads me. If you enjoy these podcasts, do go to iTunes under Not the Public Podcast and subscribe. We're also available on a number of your other favorite platforms. We have closely followed the story of sports-related concussions here on The Full Count. It was a subject we discussed with Ken Dryden on his latest book, Game Change. We also talked about it with my friend Dr. Dana Tumulty about how sports can have a drastic effect on the brain. In pro sports, the NHL is still trying to put some distance between itself and CTE. That's the term for long-term brain injuries. Other sports have admitted varying degrees of acceptance that there might be a problem. One of the issues for doctors dealing with CTE is the difficulty in accurately mapping the damage done to the brain by sports-related trauma. We can see a broken leg, a torn ACL, or a sports hernia. How do we image a concussion and its effects on a human brain? Locked deep in the skull, it seems a riddle. But researchers recently announced they may have come up with a way to map the damage done. They've developed a portable brain imaging system that uses light to detect and monitor damage in the brain from a concussion. It's called a near-infrared spectroscopy. If it works, it may revolutionize the care and treatment of concussions. Dr. Jeff Dunn is the director of Experimental Imaging Center at the Cumming School of Medicine. His team is responsible for this new technology, and he joins us on this episode of The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Listen, um, I understand your curiosity about treatment of brain injury sprang from your own experience when you went skiing with your kids. Can you explain that? Yeah, so uh, many years ago when the kids were just starting to do alpine skiing, they got into uh, alpine racing. And I could see that a lot of the kids that were getting injured and young people injured on the hill, especially with a head injury, were going to emergency or a physio. And there was really, it's when I first discovered there was really no way to image a concussion. And, and that remains to this day. If you go for a medical treatment, um, you know, I, you might think, for instance, if you go to emergency and they, you get the, you know, the best care available, you'd have an MRI. But it turns out that standard clinical MRIs can't detect any injury in the brain. So they're not good right now, as they stand, for diagnosing and monitoring concussion. Now, uh, um, give us a layman's explanation, if you could. We hear about concussion all the time in sports and people saying brain injury or concussion-like symptoms. We hear this discussed all the time. But for the layman, what, what happens to the brain when it suffers a concussion? It's, it's important to understand that. It's a good question. The, uh, Thank you. It kind of helps you think about, you know, what's going on. Um, concussion has to involve some sort of shaking of the brain. You can get hit in the head and your head will obviously shake. You can get hit in the body too. Anything that causes the head to shake. Um, so for that reason, for instance, helmets don't prevent concussion, they prevent traumatic injury and they're, they're really very important at reducing the severity of injury, but they won't eliminate concussions because you can still, your head can still shake. And then inside, you know, what actually happens? Well, that's the million dollar question. Um, if we knew exactly what happened, it would certainly be easier to figure out how to image it. So there's a bit of a, you know, let's try this, let's try that on the imaging side. We know that, uh, People often report feeling foggy, uh, disoriented. They can't process as well. Their memory isn't as good. They sometimes have amnesia. And so we know the brain isn't functioning as well, for sure. 
Uh, and we know the brain's made up in part of all these nerves that have long connections called axons, these tiny little hair-like structures that connect parts of the brain to other parts of the brain and communicate. And, and since these axons are quite fragile, one of the main theories is that some of these are being broken, and that's, uh, that's part of what reduces communication in the brain. Um, if you won't, if in fact we got a moment, I'll just kind of itemize what kinds of things could be injured. Is that something? Go ahead. That, go ahead. Yeah. So think about the brain as it has nerves. Okay, fine. But that's only about half the brain. Um, the other half is taken up with cells called glia, which are involved in part with maintaining the nerves and maintaining the brain's health. So those cells could be damaged. The brain has blood cells or blood vessels, which. Um, obviously deliver blood and nutrients, take away end products. If the regulation of blood flow is somehow impaired, that will upset the function of the brain. So if you think about the brain in terms of subsets of, of cells or structures, and each one in itself can be injured, then those can cause uh, certain kinds of symptoms. And another thing, which I'll jump in, kind of hogging the conversation here, but... Um, headache is really interesting because the uh, the pain sensors in the brain are only in the tiny thin membrane that covers the brain called the meninges. And so if, if it's kind of graphic but gross to think about, but if you made a little hole in the meninges and stuck your finger in your brain, you couldn't feel that. There's no pain sensors inside your brain. Right. Which means that headache isn't really a direct reflection of injury in the brain. And, and you have to treat headache as a guide, but not as the only thing to consider. Yeah. I mean, one of the discussions we hear about, again, it, I'm talking about sports-related stuff, but is, is the various symptoms, and you're just talking about them, a nausea, loss of memory, lack of coordination, et cetera. Uh, some people also don't report a lot of symptoms, and yet they still have damage. Can, can you explain how that happens? Well, sure. It's uh, everybody, because the brain is so complex and every hit, and shaking event is so different, chances are it's like snowflakes. No two concussions are exactly the same. Mm. And they can certainly vary in magnitude. So now we get into what we're interested in. We're not interested in diagnosing concussion. The diagnosis is fairly straightforward and it's it's evolved from, from years of understanding that uh, that brain injury has to be taken seriously. So the diagnosis involves reporting an event. It has to have an event that shakes the brain. So the doctor will talk to you about what happened. And it has to have some of that constellation of symptoms. And if those two things are satisfied, then you've had a concussion. Uh, so the diagnosis has to be fairly straightforward because it has to happen quickly and it has to happen definitively so that you can take action. What we're interested in is coming up with a way to tell how the extent of that injury and try and predict the outcome of that injury. Well, why has it been so hard to image what's happening to the brain as a result of a concussion? It's because the, the injury itself seems to, well, there's graded, uh, there's a gradation of injury. Let's, let's look at it that way. There's an injury that is small enough that you could only see it on if you took out a sample of brain and you did really good histology. Well, that's not going to happen, I hope. And <laughs> While you're alive. <laughs> no, I'm not volunteering. Anyway. No. So 
that's probably where most of the concussion injury that it's at that microscopic level it's probably where most of it occurs uh, there can be inflammation in the brain that might change blood vessel flow these but blood vessel flow isn't something you'd normally image and and so the there's no real large focal injury to look for like there would be in uh, a brain hemorrhage or a stroke or a tumor where you, you have an MRI and you go, whoa, there's a there's something in there and I can see it. In a concussion, you could have these tiny little microscopic events occurring throughout your brain, which just is too, too fine a resolution, too microscopic to pick up on MRI. So that's the main reason why you can't see it on MRI. Now, having said that, uh, there is research going on at multiple institutions, including the Children's Here and the Foothills, where the MRI facilities are looking at more state-of-the-art, newer imaging techniques that might pick up uh, injury with, with concussions. So, you know, two examples, we know that blood flow changes after concussions, so there's a, a way to look at blood flow, and that's being studied. Uh, we know that in some individuals, the, the chemical structure that covers some of these nerve axons, some of these long threads, is called myelin and um, it helps with the transmission of the nerve and in some of those nerves that you can lose myelin so there's imaging techniques that are sensitive to myelin uh, those are being studied as well and uh, and maybe in, uh, in a few years we'll have a more uh, diagnostic MRI protocol but right now we don't you're listening to The Full Account with Bruce Dobig, and our guest this week is Dr. Jeff Dunn, who is also a member of the Hotchkiss Brain Institute and Alberta Children's Hospital Research Institute. Okay, so we have this thing called the near-infrared spectroscopy that you're talking about. Tell us about it. How does it work? I got interested in this because uh, I'm interested in how brain responds to low oxygen, uh, things like high-altitude, birth asphyxia, that sort of thing. So we started to develop technolo technologies to measure oxygen levels in the brain. So just store that piece of information for a minute. Uh, and then the kids uh, started to do skiing, you know, we got interested in that uh, and realized there wasn't a, an imaging technique. And the, as I was just saying, one of the reasons why is people are looking for structural changes and they might be quite hard to detect. So I thought, okay, well, instead of looking at structure, could we take advantage of the fact that people report functional changes, like I was talking about the fogginess, et cetera. Could we look at a functional measure and would that be more sensitive? So here are the pieces we put together. First, when the brain activates, oxygen levels go up. Uh, that means that the amount of oxygen on blood actually goes up. Blood flow goes up. So brain becomes, uh, the amount of oxygenated blood in brain goes up. Now, if we could measure that, we'd have a measurement of brain activity. And in comes the light. When, when blood is oxygenated, it's red. And when it's deoxygenated, it's blue. The, uh, the chemical that carries oxygen in the blood changes color, depending on whether oxygen's there or not. So you can see this in your arteries, you know, your arterial blood, if you bleed, hopefully you're not, is red. And your veins on the back of your hands are kind of blue. If we shine light into the head and measure the light that comes out, we can get a quantified measurement of the color of the blood inside the brain. And as the brain becomes more active, it goes redder. So that's what we did. We, we developed this head cap, which shines light in with multiple, either we can use fiber optics that transmit laser light, or we can use LEDs, but we connect light uh, into the brain. And then we have fiber optics 
just a centimeter, two or three centimeters away from the source, and we measure the light that's coming back out of the brain. Uh, and then we monitor in, in real time, uh, depending on our machine quite quickly, we can, we can measure 50 times a second, the light changes that are occurring as a result of the brain activating and deactivating. So that's, that's the key measurement. But then we took it to the next step, which is getting back to the functional changes in concussion. If large parts of the brain are communicating with each other, they fluctuate in uh, a low frequency. They have activity fluctuations that are in sync. So if I look at the left and right part of the cortex, the surface of the brain that deals with motor function, for instance, there's a low frequency oscillation. And when I say low, I mean like once every 10 seconds or so. Um, and those oscillations will be the same in both regions. We call that coherence or frequency coherence. If, if the oscillations are identical, it's a one. And if they're not at all identical, it's zero. With this near-infrared technique, we can look at the activity in distant regions of the brain and measure how tightly linked these low-frequency signals are. Right. And by that, we can get a, a numerical value for how well they're communicating with each other. And we, we propose that you know somebody who has an injury to that communication system, that value would go down. And in, indeed, that's what we found. So you, you get the person in, you put this cap on their head. Do you have to shave their head or anything? Or is the hair not no, a factor? No, but if, if you don't have hair, it is a lot easier for us. And, oh, okay. and there, yeah, there are ethnic parts, you know, very tight black hair is really hard to get through because it's light we're dealing with. Okay. Uh, so, in fact, we, we, we measure in different parts of the head, but we also measure in the forehead where there's no hair. Okay. And some, sometimes that becomes our best sight. So, so we do that. We put this head cap on. Yeah. Yep. And so how long does this take? To, how long does it take for you to, to see this? Is it fairly quick? What happens? Or is it something that takes place over time? Just a few minutes. Um, we're, we're currently working on trying to figure out the best way to get the best sensitivity. You know, do we do an activity while we're doing measurement? Do we just have them sit at rest? Do we have them look at something? Do we have them try and do math? Do we have them try and do something motor? So we're trying all these different uh, ways of activating the brain or resting the brain and then collecting data. And, we're, and, and then we're doing it in uh, people who don't have recent concussions and people with concussions to, uh, to develop a protocol that gives us really high sensitivity between the two. You're listening to The Full Cat with Bruce Dobig, and our guest this week is Dr. Jeff Dunn uh, of the Cummings School of Medicine. Now, I gather the other thing that, that's important for you here is that this is a portable unit, that this is a unit you can you don't necessarily have to go to a hospital for. Is that correct? That's true. You know, the a home run would be uh, an acquisition protocol and some technology that you throw in your suitcase that's about the size of a laptop, and you take it to the ice rink or wherever, the bottom of the ski hill. Right next to the defibrillator. Yeah, yeah, one right next to the defibrillator. That'd be cool. But uh, luckily, <laughs> these are not normally life-threatening events. Okay. And uh, another another home run would be to have them, you know, in emergency departments or clinical assessments in concussion clinics. That would be useful. Now, let me tell you what we we actually know and what we hope. So, you know, what are, where are we now, and and what's the dream? So uh, right now, we've done two papers showing that if we measure people that have long-term symptoms of concussion, 
we can find a difference in their brain. That's what led to this whole discussion we're having over the last couple of weeks with various uh, reporters like yourself. We've discovered something that we can measure in the brain that we can give a number to that is different in people that have long-term symptoms. That's given us enough uh, encouragement, if you want, confidence to go out and raise funds to, to now ask the questions which are important to ask. If we measure someone really early, can we predict their outcome? Can we tell you that this was a bad injury or you'll recover very quickly? If we measure someone during the recovery process multiple times, will that numerical value recover in proportion to their actual recovery? So can we use that number as an indicator of return to school or return to uh, activity? Sort of creating a baseline type of thing? Right. And, and thirdly, does this number reflect a specific kind of injury? And that gets back to the, the variability of this injury. It, when we measure these people and, and publish our papers, we're doing a population. And some of the people we measure who have long-term symptoms look perfectly normal by this measurement. Uh, and that means we're picking up a subpopulation, which I hope we would be able to say, okay, this subpopulation has this kind of injury. But in order to do that, we now need to, to follow a large group of people from an acute phase to the long-term phase. So another home run, I, well, actually, the, the question I would have is, uh, would you use this device immediately after the injury? So again, we, we, we see all the protocols on the sidelines at a football game or in a hockey rink now, and they take the person underneath and do whatever testing. Would that be too early for using this, or would that be exactly the right time to use this? That's a good question. and. Uh, you know, one of the things we're considering is when you come off the field, how long does it take for your brain blood flow to go back to the a resting state? So if you've just done a 100-yard dash and we measure you, your brain blood flow is very different from the average person sitting at a desk. Uh, most of those people are which, you know, we're, we're using as controls. So we need a good control and we need a good... Um, we need to be careful that we're not measuring something that's activity related or nutrition related or drug related. Um, we just worked with the uh, U of C varsity football team this past summer to, to start to get that kind of answer where we measured people just as they came off the field and then sometime later to see how long it takes for the brain to settle down. And right. I would say uh, it's going to be sometime between 15 minutes and a half an hour but they couldn't just come off during a timeout and and us have a good measurement and then five minutes later they're back on. Their heart rate's too high. They need to kind of settle down a bit. Yeah. I, I, I was going to ask, you mentioned earlier, of course, about any kind of, uh, of motion injuries, whiplash injuries. We're talking here about sports and such. Is there, is there any difference to, let's say, a person who has a, an automobile whiplash concussion and, and one of these athletes you're talking about? Yeah. Uh, it. it it's important, you've used a term here, which is good to bring in, the whiplash idea. So the, for, the answer to your main question is uh, a concussion, whether it's by a motor vehicle accident or a sport injury, uh, right now is treated the same and diagnosed the same. Mm -hmm. So for the time being, we'll consider them the same. There, or if you fall, I mean, concussions are quite common, especially in the elderly when they're walking along a slippery pavement or, or they went ice skating and fell and hit their head. Yep. Um, but the whiplash part tends to relate to a neck injury. 
And uh, turns out that some neck injuries give very similar symptoms to a post-concussion symptoms. And yet, uh-huh. if, if you ignore that, you can, you can end up thinking you've got long-term brain injury symptoms, where in fact, it's a neck injury symptom. Uh-huh. So your device would be able to help people make that differentiation. That actually is, is it would be really nice. And, okay. and no, I don't know that, but that's part of you know, what we'll answer when we do this, uh, this outcome study that we're just starting now. So yeah, the, the funding that we just got now is to do a five-year program where we take a large group of kids at the children's hospital and follow them over time. We'll also be doing this at the foothills and adults, but after that, we'll be able to answer that question and maybe get back on your show. Yeah, and you have to raise the money to create these machines, or do you have a prototype already? We have one already. Uh, one of our machines came from a federal funding agency, and the other one came from to children's hospital funding. Wow, this is a, a very interesting. As I say, we've talked to Ken Dryden, and his book was a lot about concussions and hockey players, etc. And uh, my friend in, in Huntsville, Alabama, Dr. Dana Tumulty, is a, a radiological interventionist who d- does a lot of stuff with the brain. And it's, it's so interesting to see the developments that are going on, even in the short term here, and seeing sort of the potential for what you are doing and how it's going to help these kind of people. It, it's, an, it's a really exciting time, even like. Five years ago, the recovery protocols were dramatically different than what they are now. We've, we've learned a lot very quickly. And, and the implementation, because of you know, shows like yours and, and a lot of outreach of the scientists, is really happening quickly as well. So the, the idea of going and, and sitting quietly in a dark room until your symptoms go away, that idea is gone. Yeah, I was going to say that was one of the things that used to be the, the remedy and guys would go off and they would, they'd sit in a room for months and they'd get depressed as well as having all these other issues with them and, and that seems to have gone by the, the wayside. So that's obviously there's a lot of progress being made and it's uh, really interesting. And I will look forward to having you on when we get a little further down the road because this is something that impacts every parent who has a child who's playing sports and anybody who's ever had a car accident or anything like that. I mean, it's really got an applicability. Yeah, yeah, I think it's exciting. And uh, you'd asked about the hardware. I mean, uh, these yeah. hardwares, the, the pieces that we're buying now are, you can buy them, but they're from very high-end research groups, and so they're very expensive. Uh, I mean, they're they're upwards of four hundred to $500,000 right now. Uh, and each fiber that we put on someone's head, each individual fiber costs about $1,000. Wow. Uh, but in future, you know, it, like with any other technology, if you were gonna make 100 of them instead of one, I'd really hope these machines would be down into the forty, fifty thousand dollar range uh, for this kind of application, yeah. which would make it make it very uh, approachable in terms of, of putting it into many clinics. Exciting stuff, Jeff. I appreciate you coming on today to talk about it. Okay, thanks, Bruce. You've been listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest this week is Dr. Jeff Dunn, who is a member of the Hotchkiss Brain Institute and Alberta Children's Hospital Research Institute. Don't forget to subscribe to The Full Count on all our podcasts at iTunes and on my website, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. You can also... You've been listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest this week was Dr. Jeff Dunn, who was also a member of the Hotchkiss Brain Institute and Alberta Children's Hospital Research Institute. Don't forget to subscribe to The Full Count on all our podcasts at iTunes and on my website, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. You can also access my columns, my podcasts, and my poetry on the same website. I'm also appearing three times a week with Jeff Samet on Sirius XM Radio Canada Talks. I'm on at noon Eastern Time. 
That's on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I'll post our conversations on my website, on Twitter, and on my Facebook page for those who might miss it the first time round. Till next time, this is Bruce Dobigan, and remember, the story isn't complete till it reaches the full count. Round, 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 round.